that great? I, I tell you what. Uh, I love us all, but I, I think that live stream family, I give a shout out to them. I, I do want to say to Lowell Johnson, uh, I pray you guys, your family is, is healthy and doing well. It's amazing the people you can meet on the live stream. And uh, it's a great, great ministry, great blessing for us all. Well, um, Beverly and I flew in from Colorado last night late. We spent Thanksgiving in, up there in the snow. And it was absolutely one of the greatest experiences of our life. And in fact, along the way last week, I, I told Kellett, I said, you know what we ought to do? Like we do when we're virtual learning out at school, out at OCS. I ought to just do the sermon for this week on video, and I'll just send it in to you, and we could stay another day, you know. And, and Kellett said, no, him, him, we can't do that. You can't go set in that precedent. He said, good grief, we'd never see Al. Any sermon he preached would be from a beach somewhere. So I thought better. Changed my mind. We have uh, a young lady who's going to read our scripture for us this morning. Her name is Nona Nielsen. She's the daughter of Colin and Christy Dunn. And from what I hear, she goes to, she's a freshman, ninth grade at West Monroe High School, where she's on the yearbook staff and, get this, it's uh, what I'm told, a fierce soccer player. Now, that's a great description. I love that adjective, a fierce soccer player. So, uh, Nona, why don't you come on up and read our scripture for us today? John nineteen sixteen through 18. Finally, Pilate handed him over to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus, carrying his own cross. He went out to the place of Skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Thank you, Donna. Let's begin with a prayer. God and Father, thank you for injustice. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. You know, we think a lot about justice. And I'm with you, because I'll be honest, I'm pretty big on it. But when I think about the fact that the greatest injustice ever purposed ever perpetrated in the history of the world was when our Lord Jesus Christ was crucified. Total and complete innocence. Today we're in John chapter 19. Alan covered 18 last week, which dealt with the trial. There'll be a little portion of that in here still to come. But today I want you to notice something in John chapter 19. I hope you have your Bibles. This is going to be a whole lot to put up there. But I want you to notice something about John chapter 19. From verses 1 through 18, several big things, well, four big things happen. One, Jesus was flogged. He was scourged. Two, he goes through one of the most incredible mocking scenarios that's in this whole account. It just makes me sick to my stomach. Three, Pilate tries to set him free again. As a matter of fact, a lot of people believe that Pilate's intent was to just sentence him to the scourging, the flogging, and to let him be done with that. 
didn't work out that way. But you've got this scenario where Pilate tries to set him free, and then the fourth thing that happens is he's crucified. Now, here's the interesting about that for us. Look at verse 1 of chapter 19. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. That's it. All it says about that. Then in verse, look at verse 18. Here they crucified him. And with the two criminals along with him. And then there are some things that happen after that. But the actual process of that, of that flogging, of that scourging and the crucifixion, the Bible says nothing. It gives us no details in regard to that. Now, I think I know why. It's because during this time period, when this is written in the Bible, and the Scriptures tell somebody that someone is flogged, they knew exactly what was going to happen. They didn't need a detailed description. When they're crucified, they knew exactly what was going to happen. No, no description necessary. So I want to take a few moments this morning. And I want to share something with you that plays right into this. But I hope it does for you what it's done for me. A man by the name of C. Truman Davis, a doctor, M.D. This was years ago. He was, uh, he was a Christian. And he was, he was, he wanted to know, he was a little frustrated actually, because as a physician, he didn't know what the actual cause of death was in Jesus' circumstance. He wanted to know. I guess I can see that from a doctor's perspective. In other words, what would have been written on the death certificate at his death? And so he began to research. And he looked into this. I mean, in, with great depth, searching out and researching the process of the scourging, the flogging, and the process of the crucifixion. I'm going to share a little, of that, a little bit of that with you today. I'm not going to read it all for any means I mean, at all. But, uh, but I do want to share a portion. <clears throat> Preparations for the scourging are carried out. The prisoner is stripped of his clothing and his hands tied to a post above his head. It is doubtful whether the Romans made any attempt to follow the Jewish law in this matter of scourging. The Jews had a law said you couldn't strike anybody more than 40 times. And so the religious leaders would say, just do 39 to make sure we don't do too many. But guys, this was not the Jews flogging him. This is the Romans. They didn't have that law. The Roman legionnaire steps forward with the flagrum or flagellum in his hand. This is a short whip consisting of several heavy leather thongs with two small balls of lead attached near the ends of each. The heavy whip is brought down with full force again and again across Jesus' shoulders, back, and legs. At first, the heavy thongs cut through the skin only. Then, as the blows continue... They cut deeper into the subcutaneous tissues, producing first an oozing of blood from the capillaries and veins of the skin, and finally spurting arterial bleeding from vessels in the underlying muscles. The small balls of lead first produce large, deep bruises, which are broken open by subsequent blows. 
finally the skin of the back is hanging in long ribbons and the entire area is an unrecognizable mass of torn, bleeding tissue. When it is finally determined by the centurion in charge that the prisoner is near death, the beating is finally stopped. Bring up that first picture, guys. The half-fainting Jesus is then untied and allowed to slump to the stone pavement wet with his own blood. The Roman soldiers see a great joke in, the, in the, this provincial Jew claiming to be a king. They throw a robe across his shoulders and place a stick in his hand for a scepter. They still need a crown to make their travesty complete. A small bundle of flexible branches covered with long thorns are woven into the shape of a crown and pressed into his scalp. Again, there is copious bleeding, the scalp being one of the most vascular areas of the body. After mocking him and striking him across the face, you, you remember last week when Al gave the example when he's in the trial, the guy slaps him for not speaking, for not responding, and that was bad enough. But you get this from a parallel account. What they did was they put a blindfold on him. Now, this is after the flogging. They put a blindfold on him and they took turns slapping him across the face and saying, prophesy to us, Christ, who hit you? Who was that? Who was that? Who was that? After mocking him and striking him across the face, the soldiers take the stick from his hand and strike him across the head, driving the thorns deeper into his scalp. Finally, they tire their sadistic sport, and the robe is torn from his back. This had already become adherent to the clots of blood and serum in the wounds, and its removal, just as in the careless removal of a surgical bandage, causes excruciating pain, almost as though... He were again being whipped and the wounds began to bleed. In deference to Jewish custom, the Romans return his garments. The cross is tied across his shoulders and the procession of the condemned Christ, two thieves, and the execution detail of Roman soldiers headed by a centurion begins its slow journey along the Via Dolorosa. In spite of his efforts to walk upright, the weight of the heavy cross together with the shock produced by copious blood loss is just too much. And he stumbles and he falls. He just can't physically do it. The rough wood of the beam gouges into the lacerated skin and muscles of the shoulders. He tries to rise but human muscles have been pushed beyond their endurance. So they choose a, a guy from Cyrene, an onlooker, Simon, to carry the cross the rest of the way. Jesus follows, still bleeding and sweating the cold, clammy sweat of shock. 
the 650-yard journey from the Fortress Antonia to Golgotha is finally complete. We, you know, our day and our 40 days of prayer is to give thanks for deliverance. And we're getting a picture of what that's all about. And the crucifixion begins. Jesus is ordered, is offered wine mixed with myrrh, a mild analgesic mixture he refuses to drink. Simon is ordered to place the cross on the ground and Jesus is quickly thrown backward with his shoulders against the wood. The legionnaire feels for the depression at the front of the wrist. He drives a heavy square wrought iron nail through the wrist and into the deep wood. Quickly he moves to the other side and repeats the action. Being careful not to pull the arms too tightly, but to allow some flexion and movement. The cross is then lifted in place, and the titleist reading, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, is nailed in place. The left foot is pressed backward against the right foot, and with both feet extended, toes down, a nail is driven through the arch of each, leaving the knees moderately flexed. The victim is now crucified. Bring up the next picture. You know, I remember, if you've seen the movie, The Passion of the Christ, I remember when it came out. You know, that was 16 years ago. And I remember so many people concerned about their, their, their kids. And I'm, I can understand little kids, but I'm talking about teenagers. The movie was rated R. Because of violence. And when the parents saw some of the scenes, they said, no, no way. I'm not going to let my kids see that movie. Are you out of your mind? These are, this is a picture from that movie. And it's horrific. There is no question about it. But somebody finally got it right. As to what it was actually like. And let me tell you, if, if you're a Christian and you haven't seen it, you need to see it. And all of the ugliness, and all of the violence, and all of the gore. Because it's reality as to what took place the day that God died. As he slowly sags down with more weight on the, nail in his, the nails in his wrists, excruciating fiery pain shoots along the fingers and up the arms to explode in the brain. See, the nails in the wrists are putting pressure on the median nerves. As he pushes himself upward to avoid this stretching torment, he places his full weight on the nail through his feet. Again, there is the searing agony of the nail tearing through the nerves between the metatarsal bones. Of the feet. And at this point, another phenomenon occurs. As the arms fatigue, great waves of cramps sweep over the muscles, knotting them in deep, relentless, throbbing pain. With, with those cramps comes the inability to push himself upward. Hanging by his arms, the pectoral muscles are paralyzed and the intercostal muscles are unable to act. Air can be drawn into the lungs but cannot be exhaled. Jesus fights to raise himself 
in order to get even one short breath. And then finally, carbon dioxide builds up in his lungs and in his bloodstream, and the cramps partially subside. So spasmodically, he is able to push himself upward to exhale and bring in the life-giving oxygen. It was undoubtedly during this period of time, oh, that's right, six hours, six hours of that. And during that time when he uttered seven statements, three of them are right here in this chapter, seven statements from the cross. You'll recognize these. And the first, and I love it because it's here in the text, in, in chapter 19, he looks down and he sees his mom. Mary's there. And right beside her is the disciple whom Jesus loved, which most believe is John. He looks down, he sees his mom, and he says, Woman, behold your son. And he's not talking about himself. Because right after he says that, he looks at John and says, Behold your mother. And from that day on, John 19 says, that disciple took her into his home. He was worried about his mom. You think about what he's been through. All the garbage. And he looks up and he's worried about his mom. To make sure she's taken care of. Does that not show you the heart of Jesus? The second thing he says to the penitent thief, today you'll be with me in paradise. The third, is from the beginning of Psalm, the 22nd Psalm. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Let me tell you folks, I'm just going to put a little parenthetical in here. As horrific as this is, I'm convinced and I believe I can show you. That's another sermon, another time. But I believe as bad as this was, I believe Jesus' emotional pain far outweighed his physical pain. And and I, I really think I can prove it. Not to make light. But it just goes to another level. The next... Oh, wait. Hours of limitless pain, cycles of twisting, joint-rending cramps, intermittent partial asphyxiation, searing pain as tissue is torn from his lacerated back as he moves up and down against the rough timber. Then another agony begins. A crushing pain deep in his chest as the pericardium slowly fills with serum and begins to compress the heart. It is now almost over. The loss of tissue fluids has reached a critical level. The compressed heart is struggling to pump heavy, thick, sluggish blood into the tissues. The tortured lungs are making a frantic effort to gasp in small gulps of air. The markedly dehydrated tissues send their flood of stimulus to the brain. And he cries, he says, I'm thirsty. And that sounds so simple. And in, and in the grand scope of this whole thing, doesn't seem to be like a whole lot. That blows my mind. And it screams out the truth of his humanity. I guess you are. I'm thirsty, he says. They offer him a drink. A sponge spoke, 
a sponge soaked in pasca. The cheap sour wine, which is the staple drink of the Roman legionnaires, is lifted to his lips. The body of Jesus is now an extremist. And he can feel the chill of death creeping through his tissues. This realization brings out his six words, possibly a little more than a tortured whisper. It is finished. His mission of atonement has been completed. Finally, he can allow his body to die. With one last surge of strength, he once again presses his torn feet against the nail, straightens his legs, takes a deeper breath, and utters his seventh and last cry, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And God died. John 19, verse 31. Now it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jews did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The typical death, as far as crucifixion was concerned, was suffocation. It's how they ultimately most of them died. And so if they were getting impatient, what they would do is break the legs of the victim. He could not push up, therefore could not breathe, and they would quickly suffocate. Verse 32, the soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus, then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. And by the way, what Dr. Davis will say about that is, we have rather conclusive post-mortem evidence that our Lord died, not the usual crucifixion death by suffocation, but of heart failure due to shock and constriction of the heart by fluid in the pericardium. But just to make sure he drives the spear through his side and out poured blood and water. Now look at this. Verse 35. The man who saw it has given testimony and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth and he testifies so that you also may believe. Right there, I watched it happen. This is truth. Eyewitness testimony. Later, Joseph of Arimathea, this is verse 38, asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jews. Now, listen to this part. You've got to love it. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied... By Nicodemus. Remember chapter 3? Came to him at night. Well, let me tell you. The conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus that night. It must have stuck. You know? Because here he is. Helping with the body of Jesus. 
taken him down from the cross and helps prepare him for burial along with Joseph of Arimathea. Yeah, it, it stuck. And Nicodemus was right there, right there at this, this stage of the end. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds, taking Jesus' body. The two of them wrapped it with spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. And they, they placed him in a brand new tomb. Joseph's tomb hadn't been used. And the stone is rolled in place. Guys, this, this is the story of deliverance. Now, we know the story's not over. I get that. But I think what you and I, what we, we need to understand something. It's, it's, it's one thing for us to say that Jesus died for the sins of the world. It's true, isn't it? For all mankind. Jesus died for all mankind. And it's, it's amazing. And it's truth. No question about it. But sometimes... Bear with me. Don't, don't, don't throw something at me yet. Give me a chance. Sometimes when that's what we think about, it dilutes our personal connection a little bit. And what I, what I typically do, matter of fact, I may, I may do this. Um, John, do you still have your microphone? I'm going to use you as a guinea pig. You gotta love that. I mean, most people would already be exiting, right? Thank you, John. Let me ask you, I'm just gonna ask you a couple of questions. I promise they're not tw- trick questions. They are as obvious as they sound. John, um, did Jesus die for all mankind? Yes. John, do you consider yourself a part of all mankind? That, this may be the toughest. Do you consider yourself all a part of mankind? I do. Of course. Therefore, is it safe to say that, that Jesus died for your sins? Yes. Well, if I can say that, then I can also correctly say he died because of your sins. And if that be the case, and I know that's true, John, you, forget about everybody else for a moment. You, John Perkey, killed the Son of God. And the reason I know that's true, John, is because if you had been the only person to ever live on this planet, he would have still had to have died to save you from your sins. And I believe with all my heart, he would have done it just for you. And for you, and for you, and for each and every one. But you understand what I mean by somewhat diluting it when we say he died for all mankind, which is an absolute truth. But you need to boil it down and lay it in your lap. He did it for you. That stuff we read, he did it for you. He did it for me. And that's, you ready? It's almost unbelievable. But it's not. 
because I believe it with all my heart. I want to, uh, I'm going to wrap this up with, actually I'm going to share with you the words of, a, of an old song. Just hope I can remember. As I, as I offer an invitation to all of us, it's an old, an old song that probably most of you have never even heard of this guy. The, the singer's name is Billy Sprague. And, and the name of the song is How Can You Say No? And I'm not going to do it all, just a, a, just a portion of it. But li- listen to the words. Thorns on his head, spear in his side, yet it was a heartache that made him cry. He gave his life so that you would understand. Is there any way you could say no to this man? How could you look into his tear-stained eyes knowing that it's you he's thinking of? Could you tell him you're not ready now to give him your life? Could you say you don't think you need his love? Could you say, could you, say you don't need that? Let me tell you, my friend, it's the only escape you have from the penalty of your sin, the penalty of my sin. He's the only way of escape you have. And he went through that because he loves you so much. So, he stands with his arms open wide and he wants you to link up with Him, to be a part of Him. That's what He wants. And so I know a lot of you in here have, uh, have given your lives to Jesus and, it's, and you understand what this means, this, this relief, this freedom from our own sin. But there may be some that have not. And so the offer is to all of us. Let's all respond to Him today. And if you need to give your life to Him to be immersed raised up to walk in new life. Boy, you you take advantage of that today. But if you and I both just need to re-visualize this thing and come to grips with who He is and what He's done, then then we all respond today. If you have a need, why don't you come forward while we stand and while we sing.